Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. We are beginning a new series today, and you can probably see on the screen behind me, it's called God, Hospitality, and the Simplest Way to Change the World. Uh, hospitality is an interesting thing, and we tend to think of it a little bit differently in our day as the way it's been thought of historically. And so we're going to step back, about, back a little bit. But let me just read a quote to you and see if this resonates with you. In a commercial country, in a busy country, time becomes precious, and hospitality is not so much valued as it used to be. Uh, do you resonate with that at all? Uh, do we live in a very commercialized world? Amen? We live in a very busy time. Yeah, you know, there's two of you that are busy. I know you guys. You guys are just need to wake up. In fact, you guys are so busy, you're tired and can't even engage with me right now. We're going to have to do something about that because I need a little more talk back uh, if we're going to get through this morning in a, in a good way. Uh, that quote actually came from Samuel Johnson um, a couple hundred years ago. So maybe we weren't the first people that felt busy. And maybe we weren't the first busy that looked around the world and went, man, there's so much commercial marketing and activity and busyness going on that I don't really have time to stop and just be hospitable to people around me. Maybe this is just a human problem, something that's going on for a long time. Uh, but do you relate to the busyness of our world that we tend to just run after the next thing? And so uh, you get up and you immediately check in, like getting texts before you even woke up. People that are sending you stuff and, you know, pinging you. So you're checking your next message, then you run to your next appointment, then you run to your, you know, perhaps you're trying to make your next million or your first or whatever. You're running to your next career move, next sporting event, next, uh, ne- next fun activity, but you're running from one thing to another to another, and it's hard to stop and find time for people, isn't it? It's easy to run past the people that are around you, getting from one meal to another, and yet... We see all over our world that we're longing for deep, meaningful relationships and life connected in community. And yet, every statistic, and we'll work this out a little more over the next few weeks, but everything in our world says that though we are more connected than ever before, we're also more lonely than we've ever been. Now, we seem to find ways not to connect, and we live in a busy, sick world that lacks real connection. Now, the old world for, word for what we called connecting was hospitality. And there was a sense with a hospitable people that we felt connected somehow to every human being on the planet. That wasn't just me and my immediate family behind my, uh, my, my eight-foot fence and my gated community that was pulled back and we were together, but somehow I felt, I felt connected and responsible for all the people that were around me in the world in which God had placed me. And we called that hospitality. Now, in our day, we've become, we start to think about hospitality as like fancy napkins and shiny, shiny cups, right? 
Like that's what hospitality has become. It's a Martha Stewart-y kind of a thing. It's mostly about, uh, about kind of maintaining a really big meal and rolling out a spread and inviting all the, the, the people that we can make a big impression on and trying to, to put our best foot forward in terms of our hospitable engaging of those around us that are like us. But that wasn't really all the way the, the way it used to be. And re- really, historically, hospitality is mostly about having an open heart that led to an open door that welcomed all people as those who were made in the image of God and were valued by God that we wanted to connect with. So in this series, here's what I want us to look at uh, just a simple idea that can change the world. And sometimes small ideas can change the world. I've got a picture here. See if any of you know what this is. I don't really, I just read about it, but uh, this supposedly is called a transistor. A few of you probably had an idea what that was, but uh, this is a replica of the first working transistor that was created in 1947 in Bell Bell Laboratories. And it was a a tiny semiconductor that allowed for precise control of the amount and flow of current through circuit boards. This was initially used in radios but has come to be used in that little device you carry around in your pocket every day that that you're a slave to called a phone. It was claimed to be used in a computer. In fact, what they say is year over year, uh, it more than doubles the amount of integrated circuits that are used that go through transistors. And what that bad boy little boy did was it allowed us to control the power and the energy to appropriate the right amount in order to make things work more efficiently without blowing anything up. But it allowed us to funnel energy in the right direction. And a small thing can sometimes change the world. That was 1947. Think how many different devices that we've seen since 1947 over the last 75 years that have used these transistors and literally changed the way every one of us operate almost minute by minute, day by day. Um, We couldn't have the screen behind me without the invention that we just saw. That's a pretty remarkable thing. What I want you to think about today is the small thing of hospitality, maybe it's a tool as powerful as that, or maybe even more powerful. Maybe it's a small thing through which we can funnel the power of God to be used in a way that actually changes everything in our relationships and with those around us. This was actually a major factor in the early church. Hospitality is one of the things that caused Christianity to spread so rapidly through the world. In fact, the way that you tend to, that we're going to talk about hospitality in the series and you think about it, would not have existed apart from God's way, the way God worked in the world and the way Christianity built us out within our world. It didn't exist apart from the way God designed us to operate. This is something that God's people have caused to flourish in the world and apart from that would not exist in this way. In fact, it was a major, uh, major factor in, in just the distinguishing of the church from the early world. In the Greco-Roman world, meals were often grand feasts and banquets that reinforced status boundaries. Meals and banquets were things that said, we're on the inside and those people over there are on the outside. We're the ones who are in the upper echelons and those are the people that are left out of the inner circle. And They divided people and separated people. When Christianity came, they looked and said, we're all family and we're all invited in. And they actually called their meals agape feasts, meaning meals of love. And they looked and there were men and women and Jews and Gentiles and slaves and rich and poor and all these that came together to celebrate in one family. And they celebrated this agape meals because they were hospitable to all those around them. 
Justin Martyr sketched Christian love this way in the early church. He said, We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. Isn't that a remarkable shift? That my, the things that God has blessed me with aren't just for me propping up my own self, but they're to overflow and to the good of other people as well. And my house and my home and my time and my energy are meant to overflow into caring for those who even I once saw as enemies, but now I see as friends. Julian, the last Roman emperor, uh, tried to revive paganism, and he actually rebuilt temples and spruced up all their buildings uh, because Christianity was spreading faster than he could compete with. In the midst of this, he wrote to a friend of his, a pagan priest, and he said, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but they care for our poor people as well. It's interesting, isn't it? That his thought was, maybe I'll just build, build big, nicer buildings and everyone will flock in and love my false religion and run away from Christianity. The problem was Christians loved everyone so much they didn't care what the buildings looked like. It might be a good word for us as we move into our first real building, isn't it? Friends, the building isn't going to make us more Christian. The building is going to be a tool. It's a resource. It's an incredible opportunity. I definitely look forward to being in the building and seeing everything God wants to do with us. But let's not make the mistake Julian did and think that somehow the building is going to fix the, the mission. Because what drove the Christian mission in the early church was that they loved everyone in a radical way. In fact, one guy um, said, said the early Christians were promiscuous with their charity or their love. Meaning that, that they were scandalous in the way they just loved everyone freely. Wouldn't it be incredible if God's people were known for how scandalously they just loved everyone around them? And they just gave it away so free, freely that everyone's like, I'm not sure that's very smart. Just to be like, shouldn't you like hold back some and just try to measure that love a little bit? Just kind of parcel it out in small doses? But the early church is like, no, let's just throw it all away. Let's throw as much love out there as we can. It's interesting as you get to the Middle Ages, a little bit later, John Calvin said this, uh, the, the office of humanity has nearly ceased to be properly observed among men. For ancient hospitality that was celebrated in our histories is unknown now to us. And hotels or inns now supply the place of accommodation to strangers. Well, Calvin said, it's interesting, when you get to the 1500s, he says, somehow we lost that kind of vitality of hospitality that happened where we just welcomed everyone in and brought everyone in, and we sort of farmed out that responsibility to formal organizations. And so hotels and inns became the places known for hospitality, and the Christians just kind of went to church and did their thing and then pointed down the street and said, well, down there is where you can go be cared for. John Owen, just a few... Uh, centuries later, said this way, he said, in the younger days of our world, uh, but uh, hospitality had been offered to those in needs, but with us, it's unto a bountiful, it may be profuse entertainment of friends. That's a really convoluted way of saying, we used to care for everyone, but now we only care for those who are our friends, our relations, our neighbors, our acquaintances, and the like. What he means is, 
Hospitality became something for the elites. Hospitality became a country club mentality where I brought in everyone that looked like me and thought like me and acted like me, and we all took care of one another, but we no longer cared for the stranger the way the early church did. And John Owen was mourning that fact. Do you feel the tension that's there? Hospitality became something of luxury and indulgence and wealth, not something that was tied to the love of God and to the virtue that God was working in his people. It was grounded in who God was. It became not self-sacrifice, but self-promotion. Ways to gain influence and ways to gain admiration by politicians and religious leaders and others. But for the church, hospitality always extended over to those in need. Now, we saw other ways in which that kind of formal organization of hospitality bore good fruit. It became uh, really open to those in need for hospitals and hospices and things like that. Care of prisoners became viewed as part of hospitality. But what happened through the life of the church was what, what initially started as something that overflowed through individuals became something that became more institutionalized. So it's something we farmed out to the institutions to do for us. But it separated us from the heart of engaging our neighbor with the love that, that Christ came to give us. And yet, friends, when you remember what Jesus said, what were the two greatest commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus said everything is summed up with this, love of God and love of your neighbor. These are the things that are most important. Friends, by definition, hospitality involves us opening up some space where people are welcomed, a space where an invitation is given, a space where those who might not feel welcome are invited in and cared for in real and practical ways. Friends, that's, that's the church. That's what we're called to be. It's what we're called to be when we have a church home in a building and we're a people that has an address. It's also what we're called to be in our particular homes because we are representatives of Christ. We are little Christ looking like Jesus, living like Jesus, loving like Jesus in the midst of our city, scattered throughout all of our neighborhoods. And so wherever it is that you live, your house is to be an open space that's used to share the love of Christ with other people. This is the mission that Christ gave us. We saw this in our study of Acts. We just finished up, if you're new here, a study of the book of Acts, and we walked through that whole book for about 10 months. And as we looked at that book, we said, Jesus called the people and he says, wait until the Holy Spirit comes and then you will be my witnesses. And he started in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It ripples out through the whole world. And so as people scatter throughout the world, wherever they go, they set themselves up in little things called churches where they gather together, Acts 2, 42 to 47, this kind of model of the ideal church. And it says they gathered in the temple together and the church gathering the large group like this to worship. And it says then, They also gathered house to house, and they broke bread, and they shared meals. And it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as this thing was rippling from from city to city throughout the world, it was also rippling from church to church and from house to house. And God was bringing in new people, and those people were welcomed and invited in to experience what life with Christ was all about. Friends, do you want to be a part of that kind of a mission? It's going to take us retrieving, I think, the heart of hospitality. So I want us to take a look in this series at just what, the, what hospitality looks like for you and for me. And so we're going to take a few weeks to, to kind of look at that as we prepare to open the doors to our building. 
because it's gonna, we, we're going to open our doors. Like there's no doubt in my mind that's going to happen here in the next few weeks. What, what needs to happen and what we get to play a part in is, are, are we going to open our hearts to those around us? Are we going to open our arms to our city? Are, are we going to open our lives to the world so that we might continue what Jesus started in Acts and be witnesses of Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, even to the panhandle of Oklahoma, as I said last week. And that's the call, and that's what we're supposed to be about. So here's what I want to do today. I want to step back just a little bit and remind us of kind of the big picture story, because uh, contrary to what our world says, you are not just a material material body with chemical reactions that are firing off that gives you desires and tell you what you want to want to do we're, we're soul beings and we've got material and immaterial and in that we are we are beings that we need to find ourselves in, in the midst of a greater story and so we want to situate our lives in a way that gives us meaning and purpose and destination and direction and we feel ourselves attached to something that goes beyond just me Friends, you're not predetermined by your chemistry, but God intersects us, and we are a part of something bigger than just, the, than just the flesh that you have right now. And so as we find ourselves caught up in this greater story, I think that's the only way we're going to consistently live out a hospitable life. Another way to say that is, before I can call you to practice hospitality in the day-to-day of your Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on, you're going to have to understand how all of that's connected to eternity what God's plan was in the beginning and where it's going in the end. And when you understand that, it will actually give depth and meaning to the day-to-day. Sound good? All right, let's jump in. Um, the Bible starts for its first book. Y'all got to talk. Thank you. Y'all got to have to talk to me. We're going to work through this, okay? What's the first book in the Bible? Thank you. All right. Genesis 1, it says, and uh, we're going to begin just the very beginning. Genesis 1, 27. And if I can get there, I think I can find the first book. All right. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we're going to stop just there. God created you. You understand that? He created men and women, and he breathed life into us. In fact, Genesis 2 uh, gives us a more personalized view of that and said, God stepped down, the God who was over the face of the earth and spoke the world into existence, and he created it out of nothing. Then he knelt down and took up some dirt, and he formed it, and he uses that image to say that he created and crafted humanity. It says he breathed life into them, and he made them in his image so that we were meant to be image bearers of God, so that every human being who's walked the face of the earth somehow reflects the glory of God just in our in the way in which we're made up you understand that you have the fingerprints of God all over your person that means you are of incredible value that means no one can ever dismiss you it means none of your worth can ever be removed from you because God himself put it upon you and every day of your life you bear the worth of God because you're made in his image and you reflect his glory and you walk this earth as one who is specially chosen to be the, the one who carries the face of God throughout the planet. Do you feel the value 
that rests upon your life from that one text. That's interesting that Genesis 2 tells the story. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man that he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord caused, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God put us in a hospitable environment. Understand, God made the world. He made you and put you in a world that was perfectly situated to sustain your life and cause you to flourish. And we also see that in Genesis that says that, that God came and walked uh, with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. My grandmother used to sing an old hymn about that. Any of you, some of you know that hymn. Some of you know the Merle Haggard version, but that's a different deal. Uh, but he walks with me and he talks to me. Like You think about these songs, but all of that came from Genesis, the way God created us. And he made us for a relationship with him. He said it also, it's not good for man to be alone. He said he made it for a relationship for one another. But he also put us into a world that was perfectly situated to create, to sustain our lives. Genesis 1, back in 21, or back in 1, verse 28, it says, And he blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish and over the over fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given every plant yielding seed to, that is on all the earth and every tree with its seed and the fruit, and you shall have them all for your food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and it was all very good. Do you notice how many times it says every, everything, all? I mean, what God's saying is, look, you got, you got it all. Like I rolled out a world and I put you in it and I, I told you to, there you go, fill it and subdue it and you get to reign and you get to run and you get to enjoy everything that was there. That means that, that every sunset was for them. It means that every canyon was for them. That means that every, uh, all the mountaintops and the lakes and the oceans and the fields and the flowers and the animals, they were all there for humanity and it says that they are to subdue and to rule and to reign over it all. Imagine what that would be like in an untainted earth to have free reign, to wander up over a hill and see something for the first time and just go, dude, do you see that tree over there? I did not know what a redwood was, but that's amazing. And, and just to have that continual unfolding of God's creation, it's in front of us and God says, friend, go and enjoy. You know, we moved to North Carolina Years ago, I always remember this moment where I had sent Nan and a friend to go meet the moving truck, and they met there and got everything in the right room. And the goal was for them to set up the kids' bedrooms and at least as much of what they could and get everything in the right space before we got there so that it sort of felt like home for the kids. And so I got in our minivan at the time and drove five, three little boys that were under the five, age of five and my mother-in-law and a cat. And we took a 20-plus drive across the country. And as we got to the house, I remember opening up the, the, the minivan doors and the boys jumped out and they ran in the house and we said, go, fill the house, subdue it, and make it all your own. And they went running from room to room, terrorizing everything, but laughing and rejoicing in the, the space that had been opened up for them. That's the picture you're meant to get about what God created for you. That when he created the earth, he treated us like little kids and was like, hey, friends, dude, this is all yours. Go and play. Have a ball. Go for it. Like, run throughout the earth and enjoy it. And that's what God said when he created things. 
We have a hospitable God who made things just for us. The problem was we get to Genesis 3 and what happened? Sin. And we get into we get into sin and what Christians now speak of as the fall of humanity. And humanity fell from the space where God created and placed them to flourish. And because of that, as things unfold, what we discover is the fall of humanity or entrance of sin in the world displaced us in every way. That we were spiritually, socially, emotionally, physically, mentally, ecologically, we became displaced from the way God meant everything to exist. And in fact, because of their displacement, Adam and Eve underwent a physical resettlement where they had to actually live, uh, move outside of the, the careful, hospitable environment and move out into the wilderness where things were not going to be as easy. And what we see is that as, when they leave the well-cultivated garden of God's provision and move out, life's going to be harder because life becomes disordered by sin and by sorrow. And as they wrestled with sin and sorrow, they would struggle to get along. They would struggle to make ends meet. Uh, They would struggle internally against themselves. They would struggle to survive at all. In fact, everything had changed, and the world became more difficult. Friends, when we lost our way and sin entered the world, we became displaced in our relationship from God. But we also became displaced in our relationship from one another. And there became tension, and all of those things became more difficult. And God was going to have to rescue us. So what did God do about the problem? Uh, Daniel 7, uh, we're going to go to kind of a different passage there, but God's going to send his son in order to rescue. And so he himself, God the son, is going to step into our world in order to bring about our salvation and our deliverance. And Daniel 7 says this, and this is a prophetic passage that speaks about what's called the son of man, one who would come and, and have authority to rule over the nations. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What God says is, in the midst of a world that's fallen, I'm going to send a new king who's going to set up a new kingdom, and he's going to rule in a way that brings about a restoration and a salvation and a deliverance of us from sin and from sorrow. In the Gospels, what we see is Jesus himself claims to be that ruler. He steps in and says, hey, remember all Daniel 7 and everything you guys have read, that thing that's been read for millennia and within the Hebrew Bible? He says, I'm the guy. I'm the guy that came to fulfill that. And so Jesus stood up and said, I'm the son of man. And Jesus told his followers that he's the one that was sent from heaven who was divine. He was one like a son of man, meaning he was, he he became human. He became like one of us. He actually became one of us, born of a woman, but he was also divine. He's also one who could stand before the ancient days and call himself the son of man. In fact, there's three places in the New Testament or in the gospels. No other, do you realize no other titles used? Um, for more for Jesus than the Son of Man. That title is used more than any other in the Gospels. And there's three places in particular where it describes him coming and why he came. And I want to just point out those three verses to you today. Um, one is Mark 10.45. This is a verse that's become very significant in the life of our church. It's kind of an anchor verse for us as a church. And it says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this is a, a verse that, that was used to describe Jesus, the Son of Man. It says he came uh, as a king, but not a king who said, hey, dudes, you take care of me, but a king who said, let me step down and wash your feet and serve you 
and actually sacrifice my life for you. I will give my life as a payment, as a ransom, so that your debt of sin may be canceled and you may be restored to right relationship with me. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The second place is in Luke, where it says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Um, This was the mission, why Jesus came. The lost were those who lived in the fallen world, those who lived in the realm and the rule of sin and sorrow, that we were under a king, uh, the scriptures say, that we were under the prince of power of the air, we were in the kingdom of darkness, but he came to redeem us and transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, so that we might be called by his name under a new king. He came to seek and to save the lost. It's interesting, those first two statements deal with why Jesus came. They deal with his purpose. He came to rescue a people in need of ransom and deliverance. You understand what those two are saying? Uh, the third one tells us how he came. And this one may be the most surprising of all. Third statement says, the son of man came eating and drinking. Now, that seems a lot less significant, doesn't it? I mean, if you look at Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and you're like, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Like, okay, like, what, what, what's that really have to do? Like, what's the big deal with that one? Now, it's amazing in Jesus' life how much happens around a table. Uh, one guy said, if you read the Gospels, it seems like everything in Jesus' life happens either on the way to a table or around a table or right after he's left the table. That, that it seems like everything's happening that way. Here's why. Because Jesus became one of us. Do you ever feel like meals have to show up every, every day with regularity? Otherwise, what happens to your stomach? You start feeling a little growl. Uh, and maybe before that, you start having kids like yanking on your shirt. Like, hey, what's for dinner? Or that or like in my house, I'm always texting my wife like, hey, babe, what's our plan? Because I just want to know like, what are we going to do for dinner when I get home? But it seems like that meals happen with amazing regularity and they did in Jesus' life too. Because God became man. Jesus became human. He became one of us. And so Jesus came as one of us eating and drinking, but it's not just that. It's actually more important than that. What we saw in Daniel 7 was that Jesus came to establish a new kingdom. He was establishing a new way of life. He was restoring us to the way that God intended us to live. And that, what we need to understand is that he was restoring us to the original design, that we were to be able to, to enjoy life with God. We were to enjoy life as he intended it. And so um, if you look at the rest of that verse in Luke 7, it says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It says what the Pharisees said. They said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Isn't that interesting? That they didn't think it was spiritual enough for Jesus to come and eat and drink with people who were sinful. So they rejected Jesus and condemned Jesus and looked down upon Jesus because of what he did. What was it Jesus did? That man, I'm here to eat with sinners. What should the Pharisees have said? God is restoring things to the way they were, where he can walk in the cool of the day and enjoy relationship unfettered with his people. Because that's what Jesus came to give them a taste of. Is that I can sit down and have a relationship with you, and you can be restored to right relationship with me. See, what the, what the Pharisees should have said is not, oh, he's eating with those people over there, the sinners. They should have said, Oh my gosh, Jesus will eat with sinners. Can I get in on the deal? Like, I want to sit down with Jesus because what the Pharisees thought was, we're the righteous ones because they lived with self-righteousness that said, we don't need a savior. Thank you very much. 
We don't need a son of man to come and show us a new way. We don't need a king to come and restore a new kingdom. We're doing just fine on our own. What we know is they weren't. But what Jesus came was, no, I came to seek and to save the lost. What Jesus said elsewhere is, I came as a doctor to help those who are sick, not those who have no need of a doctor. So humility is part of what brings us entrance into right relationship with God. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, but he came eating and drinking to remind us that he's establishing a new kingdom and a new rule and a new way of life, and we're invited to get in on the party. Any of you want to get in on that party? To know what it's like to walk with the Lord, to enjoy him? Now, the entire point of the meal was that that they could have space with Jesus. Now, let me shift gears just a little bit. If we're followers of Jesus, for his disciples, and for those who are learning the way of Jesus from looking at Jesus and what he did, then surely we should look something like those three verses we saw in the Son of Man. We should be those who serve rather than want to be served and give our lives away in order to bring life to others. We should be those who want to seek and save and be, be a part of seeing the lost come to faith in Christ so that they might be saved. And we should be those who are eating and drinking. We should live and love and look like Jesus in our day-to-day lives. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us this. It says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of this reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. Friends, how many of you feel like an ambassador? Does that feel like this kind of glorious thing that's out there? Um, Would you say that with me? Just say, I'm an ambassador. See, you didn't say that with very much confidence. And I know that because ambassador is just a weird word. Like, we don't really know what that is. What does an ambassador do in our world? They, they go into a place in a foreign place and they set up a little circle and say, within these boundaries, you get a taste of what my people are like. You get a taste of what life in my, my kingdom or my world or my nation is like. And I'm the one who's called to be here to be a representative. So everyone in the surrounding world looking at me says, well, that must be what it's like to live in that place and to be from that kingdom. We're ambassadors that have been sent to take up residence in a foreign territory where we are to display to everyone watching what life with Christ and his kingdom and in the realm of his rule ought to look like. We're called to look like Christ as his ambassadors. Friends, the, the ultimate act of hospitality was God's not counting our sins against us, but welcoming us in like family. But then he sends us out and says, we are the ones who carry that message of reconciliation We're the ones that carry that message of invitation, of inviting others to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Friends, if maybe look at it a little differently. It's hard to think about being an ambassador, but maybe just think about being a billboard. What if if, as you walk throughout our city, you have a little billboard on your head and the way in which you live and the way in which you talk and the way in which you engage with the world around you, that this billboard is telling people what Jesus is like. How are you doing as you are a walking broadcast to our city who says this is the Jesus of the Bible who's coming to restore the world. This is the Son of Man who comes to seek and save the lost. This is the one who comes eating and drinking, restoring people to right fellowship with one another and with God. 
we're called to be walking billboards. One guy says, when we are cold, separated, and distant from those around us, we communicate that God is cold, separated, and distant. When we are warm, loving, and gracious, we put the gospel on display. This type of hospitality, which testifies to the character of our God, has always been a hallmark of God's people. Friends, let me end with this. You may not feel like an ambassador, but God has called you to be an ambassador. He's given you the privilege of being one who gets to reconcile others to his son and to himself. You get to share the gospel. You get to show them what love is like. And it's interesting that God often takes small things and small changes in our lives to do powerful, make powerful differences in those around us. In fact, God specializes in doing this kind of thing. If you think about just the Old Testament, uh, think about the way in which we, uh, you kind of go back. Moses was a murderer who ran away to become a shepherd, and God used him to set his people free. Um, De- uh, uh, Joseph was a brother that was sold into slavery who went to prison. He eventually rescued the Egypts from starvation and saved his family and the Jews. Uh, none of us would have guessed that an unwed teenage Mary would become the mother of Jesus. None of us would have guessed that Mary Magdalene who was healed from demon possession, would be the first one to see the resurrected Jesus and to be the first evangelist to go and share the good news that he has risen. None of us would have guessed that a fearful fisherman named Peter, who denied Jesus out of fear three times, would be the one in Acts 2 to stand up and proclaim the gospel the day 3,000 people came to Christ. None of us would have guessed that Saul, who was there watching as Stephen died and persecuting the church and dragging people off as an enemy of the name of Christ, would become the most vocal proponent named Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles that eventually led to us coming. God loves to take unlikely things and use them in powerful ways. As we talk about hospitality in this series, that's really the invitation, is for us to trust that God can use us and use a small change in us to be hospitable to those around us doing remarkable things. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would do good work in us. Would you cause us to trust Jesus, the Son of Man? That you would allow us to trust his grace and his mercy and you allow us to walk in this world and look like it. Help us to love those around us. Pray for Jesus. Amen.